how's uh how's your life working on that big project you're working on you can talk about confluence right i can't talk about confluence that's that's, that's, that's uh, not secret right yeah, i can't talk about, about confluence about apparently i just found out that i could oh okay cool it's interesting being at the ground floor of a game being made mm-hmm. when like the mechanics aren't set in stone and are in its third and quite possibly f- soon fourth I- 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 iteration not that i'm on the mechanical side of it i'm doing the story and translating something from the second iteration into the third apparently this book's been almost written but not quite published two times before which is what happens a lot yeah. when it's one person doing everything, which is why my personal projects now are not ever me by myself. Yes, it's, it's really hard to produce a game by yourself, and especially a big game, because my understanding is that Confluence is like, like aiming, aiming for like some, some, some Pathfinder, Blue Rose, Exalted shit, like a big old book. Uh, it's two books. Uh, one is probably going to be a lot oh, smaller. Okay. So right now, it's the core game with all the mechanics is its own book, and then it's a giant setting book with all of the oh, s- yeah, that's cool. I setting like that. information, and that's my book. Nice. And it's only that big because I decided that it would be. <laughs> and I did my outline, and then I assigned word counts to it natively, as opposed to going, cool, here's my total word count, and then s- split that up, and I came within 20,000 words of my original estimation. So, you know, that's fun. Nice. That's hard, too. Yeah. Not everything I have my team doing is going to end up mm-hmm. in my book. Some of the setting stuff they're doing ends up in the core book. Mm-hmm. But of that, that's maybe, I don't know, 50,000 of the nearly 300,000 words ends up in the other book. Almost everything else is for my giant ass tome <laughs> that I'm just going to put on the table the next time somebody asks me, oh, what's my qualifications? Thunk. Thunk. Just like whipping it out. Yeah. Slam it out on the table. <laughs> yeah, that's um, that is definitely what I'm here to do. That's awesome. Yeah, people love a people love a big old coffee table setting book. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely feel like there's a there's a market of people who just buy big books because they're cool. Yeah, I, I just I, yeah. I I I've always been the type of like I love a thick book. It looks great on my shelf. It looks great on a table. Uh, please make a PDF or a SMD <laughs> or a wiki or something, because using a giant book is impossible. If I'm actually going to y- use it as actual reference, a giant tome is completely useless to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nothing quite like a bookmarked PDF for trying to find exactly the thing you're looking for God, in yes. a giant tome. I do enjoy now that people are getting what PDFs can do. And, like, making page references clickable, so I could just click a page reference and it'll take me to that page. As opposed to some games like, you know, 5e that doesn't even give you page references or, like, where you can find some of these rules. So it'll just tell you this, you'll be doing, I don't know, a grapple. And, like, the grapple rules are somewhere else and you just have to find that out for yourself pick yourself up by your rules-based like bootstraps and figure out how to play this game <laughs> i can't i also can't believe we're less than 10 minutes into this episode and already we threw some shade on fifth edition this is all this is all i do now <laughs> this is what my life is and i didn't want to be this person y'all made me into this person i'm sorry i was Not a 5e stan and then i met y'all 
I'm gonna stick with sorry, not sorry. <laughs> so I'm gonna That's stick fair. with that. That's fair. <laughs> bonus experience we are a podcast with a deeper look at the play experience and the finer details of running and writing games we are queer people speaking with authority about games and yes we swear die mad about it i am as always your lethal host monica industry professional game designer game developer you know me you love me i presume given that you're here but you may have noticed that i am here with someone else it is not the lovely voice of Ray who is speaking to me today, because unfortunately Ray is really sick the week we're recording this, doesn't have much of a voice, and was unable to join me in the studio, so we had to call in a friend, uh, and that friend is you! David, please tell everybody who you are and what you're about. I am David Castro, local goth kid and uh, TTRPG <laughs> writer. I am a developer for Scion. I do most of my work for Onyx Path Games. Uh, it'd be easier to list the lines I'm not on than to list the ones I am on. <laughs> I yes, am also, same. I am also the setting developer for Confluence from Cosmic Mirror Games. All right. Well, we brought David in here to talk about D&D, but because this is bonus experience, we're going to talk about D&D 4th Edition, because of course we are. <laughs> <laughs> it's a favorite around these parts. We love it. It's certainly had a big impact on me as a designer, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about that as we get further into the episode. But to start, well, let's get right to the hot takes. Was 4th Edition as bad as people on the internet say it is? Uh, no, that seemed <laughs> easy. Uh, oh, I, I guess I should say more. Yeah, probably. So, uh, no, it was ahead of its time making choices that games coming out now or being made now to come out in God knows how long are beginning to revisit from the way that the actual books are written, giving people actual direction that they need to run a game outside of just this one, to giving books that are just pure rules so that they can be referenced directly, something that we're doing now in like SRDs, codifying everything in the same way so that if you switch what class or splat you pick, you don't have to learn ostensibly a new game. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 <laughs> God, there was a, one of my best friends went from doing just uh in 5e uh just went from doing like only martial stuff into playing a spellcaster and it was like they just couldn't grok it like it just it didn't make sense about when to use a spell slot when to do this when to do that and just not having that makes it so much easier and is something I'm seeing now that uh, took how many years? What, like, <laughs> ten years? It's been ten years or something like that? Yeah, uh, obviously you know I agree with you. The answer to was it bad is definitely not. It's in fact the only d and I like. 
that's not true. I also really liked basic D&D, and I've, 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 had, I've had fun playing a bit of 5th edition, but I'm still salty that they removed the, the Warlord more on that later. Uh, and I'll be real, it's because 4th edition had powers. Straight up. That's why, that was what got me into it. And that is because I am a D&D person, but for Exalted. And powers are basically just charms, so it was an easy sell for me. More on powers being great later as well. Uh, and like you just said, 4th edition had unified rules for every class, race, monster, and counter building. And then it divided these down by roles. And so it was really easy to just kind of go, I want to play this thing plus this thing plus this thing and have a character pretty fast. And wow, did some people hate that. Uh, I don't understand why people disliked the idea that like things working together similarly makes for a better game. But boy, is that the one thing people are like, oh, the characters are the same. The wizard can no longer just melt a fighter. This game sucks. And I was just like, oh, God, shut up. I hate that. I hate that argument so much. Which I think moves us really nicely to the next topic. Why all the hate? I mean, part of it has to be that change is hard. This happens. Yeah. <laughs> like, people, and by people, I seem to mean, like, D&D people specifically, like seeing a thing and knowing what it is without having to think a lot about it, not doing the work. 4E was nothing at all like 3E or 3.5 before it. And when people, these people, these, like, old heads, uh, grognards in, in, include your own nickname here see something different they get all bound up in that it is different and dismiss it as bad before ever actually looking into what it is part of this happens with every edition change like edition wars always suck but like D&D seems to make it an art form to have really sucky edition wars <laughs> and like it doesn't even matter if like like 5e is a return to form to like 3.5 like I've actually been able to translate 3.5 things pretty easily into 5e when it takes actual work to do it from 4e to 5e and even people deride like Pathfinder even though it's basically 3.5 and then 2 is just the next logical step from 3.5 to whatever else it would have been if it stayed on that course in a with quasi modern sensibilities so like it it doesn't even matter if what's changing is slight and on the same path as what it already is it's that it's changing at all it makes people think oh i'm going to come to your house in the night and take your books <laughs> and only i do that so <laughs> it's fine. Uh, but beyond there being just edition changes give people brain rot, which is true, and that is true for every game. I have also gone through three Exalted Edition changes, and boy, the brain rot is real. But Wizards was terrified of another D20 OGL happening again, and then creating a bunch of competitors. For example, uh, Mutants and Masterminds in Pathfinder 1st Edition were two things based on the D20 OGL that like kind of made their own game, and then scared the shit out of Wizards because it did super well. Excellent examples of this. Pathfinder, of course, being the big one, and it sort of launching Paizo being people who just made Dragon Magazine articles to being a prominent publisher. So because Wizards was afraid of this happening again, and the idea that these tiny publishers could possibly take money out of their pockets, they created a new license called the GSL, and boy did it suck ass! Whew! 
So if you were a third-party producer, like Kobold Press, for example, or like you do, David, Mm -hmm. suddenly you were extremely limited in what you could produce fan content-wise, which is not a good look. Bad wizards, not good. And so you just didn't have people producing all these beautiful setting books, these like new classes, you don't have the thriving community you have on DriveThruRPG's DMs Guild because they made it so hard to produce that. And that was a bad call. And I think that has a lot to do with why people remember it poorly. And furthermore, this was really the first time that internet tools were becoming popular and commonplace. So you have to remember that this is also happening from what, like 2008 to 2010? No, it's five years. 2008 to 2014. Because I think 5th edition comes out in what, like 2015? Uh, There was a 5e playtest that took like two years and then it came out yeah. in 2014, I think. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right, so you're we're, we're looking at sort of the end of the early aughts and the beginning of the 2010s. So internet tools are really becoming a thing at this point. And the wizards, of course, in pursuit of maximum profit, made all their character builder content paywalled. I had a subscription to it. And they didn't have PDFs of any of the books. And this was also when like the Kindle was starting to become a thing. Tablets were starting to become a thing. Smartphones were starting to become a thing. And it was basically hard copy or bust. Also a bad look for not kind of keeping up with the times. And the original character builder program was this excellent, downloadable, robust little thing that you could put on your desktop and save all your characters to your computer. Didn't have to save them on the cloud or anything like that. And then it would print off a really excellent little character sheet. And it was so good. And it updated automatically. You basically just like ran a little patch and then it got all the new things from Dragon Magazine, from any new book. And before paying a small subscription, you kind of had access to all of that. And it was like local. It was on your computer. And then naturally, they pulled the plug on that fucking phenomenal tool to make a shitty in-browser version that limited the number of characters you could have, because of course it did, and it ran on Silverlight. Programmers who are listening to this just puckered their buttholes, and I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But uh, there are a few saintly individuals out there on Reddit who have preserved the character builder. And so I think there's like a communi- couple communities out there where if you still want the fourth edition downloadable character builder, you can find some godlike programmer who has kept a version of it and can give it to you. And I did use it on an old PC for when we were playing in a fourth edition game in person, and it's still just as good. Yeah. <laughs> I used to listen to a 4E actual play that still had that stuff. Uh, this was about when 5E dropped. So, like, Mm -hmm. they didn't pull the plug on it quite yet. But then they did, and they still had everything. And to that point, like, yeah, I mean, they're still doing that with 5e. There's still no official 5e PDFs. If you have one, it's because somebody made a copy of their their stuff. Like, D&D Neck, sorry, uh, D&D Beyond, rather, Mm -hmm. is the same thing. It's just going through your browser, and you, you can only have so many characters, and unless you pay for access actually it's worse because unless you pay for access to certain books or give a subscription i think it is now Mm -hmm. you only have access to the stuff that's in the like basic guide which is like one version of dwarves one version of elves or two versions of elves and like one subclass of each of the classes or something like that and if you don't have that well then you can i guess write it in and make your own homebrew (laughs) which is just copy and pasting from the books i guess you can do that but who has that much time so my point just to sort of summarize the point and then roll us into the next one wizard sure did make wanting to buy into it as a community content author or a player trying to get other new folks into it pretty hard which brings us to the next point 
So it wasn't as bad as people think, but was it good? It was revolutionary, it was groundbreaking, and it's not terrible. Which is, I guess, uh, splitting the baby and being quite comfortable (laughs) on this fence. (laughs) It did many things that I would put in a game were I to make one from the ground up, more on that later. But also things, things that I wouldn't do. It assumes that you're playing on a grid with with minis. I'm sure you could, like, theater of the mind, a 4E game, but it'd be really difficult because how everything is talked about is in squares or, like, based on a grid, assuming you have the commonplace, like accessories to play TTRPGs the way that I would hesitate to say most, but probably most people play them. Yeah. In the last couple of years, I've sort of moved away from actually having physical things to theater of the mind, but that's not really a gameplay choice as much as I'm just lazy and don't want to draw out things all the time. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. I definitely agree that I don't think you should attempt to play 4th edition without a map. And I don't necessarily think that that's bad. I did find when I was running it a lot that there was some instances of uh, if I used specific models, people would just assume that the model was that, even if I just was using it as a placeholder. Mm -hmm. Like, I would be like, oh, this is a giant. And I would put down like an alligator on a large base or something like that, because that was the only large base mini I had. And then people would be like, I target the alligator. And I'm like, it's not an alligator. It's a frost giant. And people would be like, yeah, I target the alligator. And I'm like, it's not an alligator. It's a frost giant. <laughs> uh, so what I wound up doing to solve this problem and to try to get people to stop focusing entirely on the objects and then create the theater of the mind part. Like, we are all imagining what is happening, but we're just using the board to show where things are, more or less, right? So I would get bottle caps. I got, I saved bottle caps and I saved jar lids that were roughly the same size as like, this covers four squares, cool, that's a large base, this is gargantuan, whatever. And I bought a spray can full of chalkboard paint <laughs> and bought like a dollar store pack of chalk and would write frost giant on the, the big base and put that on the board or like get acrylic ones that you could write on with a dry erase marker. I did that too, sort of. Uh, yeah. I didn't take the additional stamp of then, like, making it so I could write on them, but I had a, like, collection of coins from different currencies, and I'm like, this can fit on, like, where the four corners of a large thing would meet, so I'd be like, cool, this this fits four things, this would yeah. be my large base, and it's, like, I don't know, a one dollar Australian coin or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, I would also use those little beads, those little gem-like beads you can get mm-hmm. that go in aquariums or in flower vases. I would usually lean towards ones that were like either white or clear, because you can also write on those with a dry erase marker, and then like put M on them for minions. And that really turned people around from visually locking themselves into whatever models I was using to then actually using their imaginations and imagining the fight. And of course, because I am... First and foremost, an exalted person, I always encourage people to describe their actions. And so using the table sort of as general visual aids, but keeping leaving them kind of blank created the theater of the mind part. But I definitely had to work around <laughs> the base assumptions for that, which I don't I don't think that's bad. 
I just think it is what it is. I think that's just sort of a neutral state. It's either for you or it isn't. Yeah, right? my not being pleased about that is definitely a personal choice, not a yeah. like a a abject criticism. But I also did all of those stuff back when I was doing mm-hmm. a in-person 5e game before the world ended. Uh, I <sighs> would have all of those beats because my game store just straight up sold, sold those. Nice. Again, never wrote on them, but I would always go, cool, all of the blue ones are this. All of right. the green ones too. are that. And uh-huh. they didn't have much trouble picking that up, even if they would just go, I'm attacking a blue one that worked for me. It was fine. I yeah. would also use those like tiny D6s that are my shadow run dice because it's so much easier to roll 47 d6s if they're tiny tiny yeah i know <laughs> uh and just go cool all the number ones are this all the number twos are that yeah definitely i think the craftiness part is pretty fun but besides that i think it's also kind of the only D that's really been directly honest about what D is which is a game about treasure and dungeons and fighting uh and adventure right and anyone who rolls up in the comments about how it didn't support exploration or gaining treasure is wrong. It's that you're straight up wrong. That is in the book. And if your argument is that D&D isn't D&D without dungeon delving into dangerous places and collecting treasure and escaping with your life as an ordinary human, then I regret to inform you that D&D hasn't been D&D since second edition. Shush. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Can you tell I've had this argument a lot? Yeah. I've I mean, had this argument a lot. <laughs> yeah. Like, it... it, it... I don't understand the argument that it's not about treasure when it codified what things you can wear where and that you have two ring slots and like two arm uh-huh. slots and like a yep. head slot and all this and all stuff. the all those items did a very specific thing and I'm I'm literally looking at my collection right now where there is in fact a treasure book yeah. I own it <laughs> it existed it just made magic items not boring plus ones anymore which is only good, in my opinion. Indeed. Furthermore, the design principles are bar none. It's a great place to look at for how to understand exception-based design, as well as how to make a bunch of options function on the same core rule skeleton, while retaining that game feel of being wildly different. A fighter does not play the same way as a wizard. They're different, despite the fact that they kind of function exactly the same core-wise. And while people wailed and ground their teeth about classes having roles that was truly one of the best parts it formalized what people had always been doing yeah so i've always been a a proponent of this class does this and not trying Mm -hmm. to make a like not give every class a pet subclass not give every i am much bigger of a fan of like having my fighters be fighters and if I have to give them spells, be very small about it and make my spellcasters spellcasters. And if I have to have them swinging a sword, be very small about it. Like keeping these things separate, like keeping my chocolate from my t- t- peanut butter sort of thing. <laughs> and like where I love where 4E straight up puts like this class does this role and this role, well, sure, sure, they'll eventually give the other roles a nominal choice. Like, you can have a controllery rogue, I guess, but that's not what rogues are for. Right. So don't, like, sure, we'll give it to you to shut up, but, like, <laughs> the, there will be five f- five sub-rogues, and one of them will be a controller, and the rest will all yeah. be sh- sh- strikers deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> 
Welcome to the mid-episode break. BXP and the mid-episode break room are brought to you by the misdirected Mark Network. Ray is not here, so I'm going to have to bing for myself. Bing! Become a BXP patron! Patrons get to chat with us directly. They get special Discord roles! You get exclusive hangouts! You get to hear me talk about all kinds of interesting things directly! You can come and hang out with us, we will give the link later, and you can support us for as little as a dollar a month. Also, just so you know, the Discord is not locked to patrons. Anyone can come hang out with us, it's just that patrons get a special channel with access directly to us. If you'd rather support BXP without Patreon, you can also subscribe to us on Ko-fi instead. That is ko-fi.com slash bonus exp. Or buy all our stuff. If you support us on Coffee, uh, you get all the benefits of being a patron, including early released episodes and extended cuts. You can buy all our stuff. Uh, we have a merch page. Just go to bxpcast.com slash bxpswag. Check that out. And don't forget that BXP is sponsored by Nerdy Kepi, who David works for, by the way. You can get all kinds of rad queer swag. Just remember to use code BXPCAST at checkout for 10% off, which never expires. So you can buy all kinds of cool stuff at a discount as many times as you want. Just gonna shout out NK Shorts here. I bought two pairs of shorts. They are the best shorts that I own. They are loud, the colors are really vibrant, and they're super fucking comfy. To quote the great sages, they are comfy and easy to wear. Also, saying nice things is always free, so please leave us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Google, wherever. Help us get more listeners. Tell your friends about us. We would love more people to listen to us, especially if you got queer D&D friends who are learning to GM for the first time. Send them BXP. Tell them how great we are. We're really great. And if you like bonus experience, you will also like Mastering Dungeons. RPG veterans and game designers Teos Abadia and Sean Merwin look at the game and the hobby of D&D from a variety of viewpoints, reporting the news, understanding the business, reviewing the products, and illuminating the design. Whether you're a fan, a player, a DM, or a designer, Sean and Teos cover topics of interest to you. Alright, so, now that we're back, what's your favorite bit of 4th edition? Uh, I love powers. I love knowing how all of the abilities from fighter attacks to cleric prayers to wizard spells are all in the same system. I don't have to learn how magic works and then how weapon-based combat works. I, f- I don't like having to flip throughout a book to figure out how two-handed combat works, but also if I'm casting spells, do I need a free hand? Do I need, like, all of these all of these different things don't need different systems. I just need to know which things are my daily encounter and at will powers so that I, so that I know how often I can do them and then tell me what each of these things do. I've heard a lot of people talk about how this made the game more like a video game than a TTRPG. Sure. I mean, in both you have effects with cooldown times. I don't see how that's bad or even particularly different from cool. <laughs> I have a fifth level spell slot. I get two of these per long rest unless I'm this level and then I can do whatever blah, 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 exceptions here. But like that's I don't see how that's feasibly different other than just straight up saying this is a daily power. I get to use this once per day. Exceptions apply. Yeah. And like, is that bad? No, there's nothing wrong with emulating a sis- some systems from video games. Uh, I'm not a fan of other uh, things that emulate them, but like, especially now with every video game that 
is popular for 10 minutes getting a like RPG, I don't think even those complaints would be particularly common now in the world of 2022 as opposed to whenever the hell 4E came out. <laughs> 2007? 2008? Time isn't real. A while ago. <laughs> yeah. And the video game thing isn't even accurate. Like... Where do you think video games got the idea of limited time powers from? Exactly. Like where do, where do you where do you think Final Fantasy got that idea from? Just 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 putting that out there. It's from D&D. It's from the original version of D&D. And also like the idea of powers with a limited number of uses also comes from war games and it has way more in common with a skirmish war game than it does with a video game down to pieces having specific roles. It's just that Rather than one person controlling the army, it is all the players working together. And uh, this, I think, is a good place to kind of segue into exception-based design, because I also really fucking love the powers. I'm a, I am a powers guy. I have written powers for a ton of things. I've written them for Scion. I've written them for Exalted. I've written them for Trinity Continuum. I would like to write them for more things, but, like, God, a lot of my word count has been dedicated to creating powers for games. And exception-based design is one of 4th edition's great strengths. So let me kind of just explain this a little bit. Because in order to have a game with really fucking cool powers, first you need an extremely solid core system with good rules that say when you can and can't do things. Both can and can't are important, because special powers let you take these rock-solid rules and then break them. And by break them, I mean create specific safe exemptions that are fun to play with, right? I don't mean actually crack the system open over your knee. And exception-based design is looking at this core frame and then going, where can I take this no and make it a yes without it being a problem? So just as a quick, easy example of something I could remember off the top of my head from 4th edition, all characters have a limited number of actions they can take on their turn, nicely categorized by, I believe it was standard, minor, and move. Mm -hmm. And then you could slide those up and down, like you could turn your standard into another minor, you could turn your standard into another move. You could turn your uh, minor into another move, but not up, right? You couldn't exchange a move for a standard. Yeah, it was uh, descending, right? I believe it was a a standard can become a move or a minor. Move, right. A, a right. move could become another minor, and you just mm -hmm. have the one minor if you don't right. translate uh, uh, otherwise. Yes, you are correct. So you have you like uh, a warlord could hit an enemy and then give a free attack to another ally within certain range, or also engaging with the enemy, right? And that free attack is another standard action, right? So that exceeds the limit because the Warlord's thing was basically creating action efficiency. Attacks was just the most common thing it could do, but it also, the Warlord had a bunch of other, like, action efficiency exceptions in that vein. My books are not in front of me, so I couldn't point all of them out, but the free attack is probably the easiest, cleanest example of, like, no, you can't normally attack off your action. No, you can't normally attack more than once. But here you have this class whose whole thing is hit him again, right? My favorite <laughs> thing that Warlords can do in 5v attempts in the Battlemaster move is the Commander Strike of your move is to just tell one of your friends to, to like attack again. Yep. And that's your entire standard move is go, hey, you hit them. Yep. And then that is also like playing within that exception space where can you normally give your action to someone else? No, but in this case you can, and the end result is something better. And all powers worked this way. Like, 
sorcerers and warlocks eventually got the ability to, like, punch through resistances. Normally resistance reduces damage, but this is the exception to the rule, and that's good exception-based design. And it is really a good thing to read up on if you want to do that in your game. And, and, you know, we're back to I'm literally never forgiving wizards for giving me the best class ever, the warlord, and then taking it away with the world's stupidest excuse. Fuck you, Mike. What was the excuse? <laughs> uh, you can't shout a hand back on. What? <laughs> there was there was this like, oh, the warlord is stupid because it's not magic, but hit points are real, and it's it is mind-numbingly dumb. Hit points is just a extrapolate. Oh god, Extra- I could I, uh-huh. I could yep. I could go into th- this and be I like, oh, the- I mean, you can you can make anything n- narrative. Shut up. I I can hear the pain setting in, so. Same I understand. Same. <laughs> uh, which I think this moves us right along to our last point, which is what's worth stealing from 4th edition for your own game. So I am doing this right now. Mm-hmm. On top of all the 17,000 other things I'm doing, uh, <laughs> most of which take precedent because of uh, packs and money, this is one of the things I'm doing where I'm going through 4E and going, cool, uh, if I were to make a dice pool game but pull from f- all the stuff from 4E that I like, what would that look like? A lot of it is hacking off 4E and then making a, like, Frankenstein of other, or, you know, f- f- Frankenstein's monsters, don't yell at me, Um, <laughs> of what other, still other games do, and um, making something cool. I love th- that it codifies everything into one core system. That everything from attacks to spells to healing all works in about the same way. So that while actual gameplay of like your choices as a spellcaster would be different than those of a melee fighter than those of a a stealth based rogue are different. That difference is more narrative than it is mechanical. I can understand how a how a rogue works, but like in gameplay, the attack from a assassin that can get extra damage because they don't know I'm there is more narrative than it is different from my spellcaster tossing a fireball in somebody's face. It's mechanically kind of all the same, but narrative is the difference, and that's where I want all of those differences to to be. Yeah. And it just makes the game easier to learn, which is what mm-hmm. one assumes we want. I was <laughs> just on Twitter last night. Somebody was posting a game in which, in a fight, you have to like take your score and divide it by 10 to see how many rounds of combat no. you can survive stop. before no, you have stop. to take a break and then you no. have to take two rounds take a break mm-hmm. and then you're nope. the bad guys get to take two free swings at you and if you <laughs> die you no. have you roll luck and if you roll under your luck score the combat restarts from the beginning and you run it again now okay okay all right you know what you know okay so like i shared that just to hurt monica yeah uh, it did it worked it hurt me uh psychic damage deep deep within but so okay people like to complain that fourth edition was just like an mmo was like well powers had limited durations so therefore video game that what you just described is trying to be a video game yep 
Because that would actually be a really cool, interesting video game mechanic to manage, right? Like, you have your little JRPG party, and you're fighting the boss, and you have to sort of manage their stamina or whatever. But uh, all the math being out, done by a computer, a not by you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> then the computer does all the math, and that, would, that sounds like a, a fun challenge in a video game. Maybe not the kind of video game I would choose to play, but I could see why someone would be super into that, right? Like, people fucking love roguelikes. Mm -hmm. uh, including the part where, like, if your luck runs out, you have to start over. That is literally trying to make a video game mechanic into a tabletop game. Not cooldowns on powers, y'all. So as far as rules I think are worth stealing, if you're making a tactical game, oh my god, the D&D 4th Edition rules for force movement are fucking phenomenal. I love them so much. Push-pull-slide is the best breakdown of how you can move characters around on the, in the scene, on the board. And I straight up almost put it directly into Exalted Essence, but I actually didn't. That that then creates a very strong dependence on visual aids, mm -hmm. which, as I talked about earlier, is not really a good or bad thing. It's a neutral thing and a taste thing. People like sometimes don't like to be that dependent, and then that also then can really limit where you can play. Because if it's that, like, we did talk, I will call it sort of a problem to be super dependent on visual aids just because it limits where you can play. Because, like, if your only access is a bunch of friends on a Discord server, you're like, well, how are we going to see where our characters are? Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, there's, like, Roll20 and a lot of stuff out in the Foundry. We used a thing called, um, oh, it was Tabletop Some. We called it The Tubble, and that was not actually the name. <laughs> it was, like, Tabletop Something, and it was a little remote thing you could make a thing on. You could use a Google Jamboard. Like, there's a lot of stuff, but you still have to do the work of that, right? Yeah. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't want it to be that dependent. I wanted visual aids to remain optional. And when you include things like push-pull-slide, which are great rules, you do then create a dependency on visual aids. So be aware. Also, clocks of Blades in the Dark fame are just skill challenges from 4th edition, just represented visually and with a little bit more texture. Skill challenges walked so clocks could run. I love uh, skill challenges. I... Uh, They're great. Yeah. The the <laughs> podcast that I like, uh, that I will just call out here, if that's okay. Yeah, no, it's fine. Shout it out. They are called critical hit they did like five years of a uh, 4e campaign that like ran from first level all the way to like the end of it and the gm made his own like skill challenge rules where like you can't use the same skill that somebody else used right before like basically you'd have to roll for a, 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 a initiative and then you can't use either the skill the person before you used or the skill you used last turn. And, like, that made it so you weren't just spamming stealth or whatever. And, like, it had to narratively make sense for what you were doing to try and complete the task mm -hmm. they had. Uh, this is where the math comes in. Uh, N plus <laughs> one number of successes where uh, N is the number of people you have. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Versus N minus one uh, f failure. So, so, so that it's always easier to fail than it is to succeed mm -hmm. and like i've been using that exact system in all of my games since i began playing regardless of if it's 4e 5e and in some cases where it makes sense even other games i use that uh because that just works so well with how i see skill challenges no that's really great but the last thing i think is is really really critical to learn from D D fourth edition is the top-notch gm advice like, 
The DMG is super good. It is still an extremely good book. Like, if you can grab a PDF copy or buy a physical copy from someone secondhand or whatever, I strongly recommend that you do so. Because it actually tells you how to run the game and how to just be a good GM. There's genuinely good GM advice in it. Like, what to expect from players, how to build a balanced encounter, and holy crap, were the encounter building rules great. I will say that one of 4th edition's problems was that it had too much hit points on its characters, but that's actually really easily house-ruled, so I'm not that worried about it. That's a thing to watch out for if you're running it. There's, there's a lot of hit point bloat, but that's solvable. It also includes, like, what sort of things to include if players are more interested in befriending Scrongle the Goblin, rather than delving into the dungeon nearby, and so on. And I, I really kind of don't think enough games fully grasp how critical it is, and then they leave this part out. Yeah, so much this. I recall uh, there was a game I ran where my party was on a boat in the Shadowfell, and they passed by this, like, iceberg, and they went, nope, we keep going. And I'm like, guys, this is the only thing I've got, so get off the boat. I, I don't have <laughs> anything else for you. I'm sorry. And, like, had I, like, this was really in the beginning of my DMing, mostly before I even began to, like, do the actual work of being a, like, game writer. Now, like, a year after that, I had a city where I was like, here's six plot hooks. You can pick one of them, but here's six different things, and it's all across the city, and you can do whatever you want. But, like, what your DMG tells you, what your game manual, insert the way you title your game manual here, tells you does inform what you do with it and what options you believe you have. Uh, if you give room to befriend Strongle, you are open to players making that choice. If you don't, some people may think you literally can't. This goes for both players and GMs. If you don't give space for the ability to answer a conflict without combat, when your players see a hungry griffin on top of the house where you're supposed to be going, you either... And they want to, like, talk to it or sort of, like, rationalize a non-combat answer to this problem. You either have to scramble to f figure out how to run that, which is just stressful on a GM, or you do what's worse and you lock them out of doing that. Either by straight up telling them no they can't, or, or having the monster attack and start a combat that you want just because you didn't think of anything else. It's sort of, if you don't give space and tell people they have that space, they often don't know they do and don't let their players do everything they want to do. This also goes into that, like, sort of thing where uh, there's a lot of talk about how, like, DMs will write this big, expensive conflict and then the players see, like, cats, you will buy them a toy and then they'll play with the box it came with instead sort of thing of like people getting mad that like they're doing something that you don't want them to do as opposed to just facilitating what they want to do and i think that the 4e dmg gives you a lot of tips to how to engage with players on that level and just supporting what they want to do as opposed to forcing your story down their their throats yeah for real if you are a DD gm who is listening to this and you're like, oh man, I really struggle with getting players to be on board with my ideas, you should go listen to our early bonus experience episode, The Art of Railroading, which will teach you how to get people to be on board with your concept without <laughs> having to force them to do it. 
you can, in fact, convince people to play along with your story without having to force them. You could do it. I do it all the time. You can um. <laughs> you can see the like development of me as a GM and game writer, where I'd have a four-page script of everything that happens in my earlier games, and now it's more like I've made, I don't know, six encounters at the level that I want, and I'll just roll a die and see which ones they hit. And if they hit all of them, cool. If they don't hit any of them, dope. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, I, we could we could do a whole another topic on being a good GM, and maybe maybe you can come back when Ray is here as well, and you can talk with both of us. I would love about to do that. The the art of running good games, especially since we're trying to like bring in some more people who are who are new to games, who are new to games through D and D, and we're really interested in hearing from you and what we can do to help you. Learn to be a better GM, how to feel more comfortable in the GM role. How can we, dear gay D&D Twitter, how can we help you? We're here, we're here to help you. We want to support you. So please sound off. You can find the show at bxpcast.com, part of the Misdirected Mark Network. David, give me a bing. Bing. Thank you. <laughs> uh, if you are one of the people we're trying to reach out to right now, if you are a gay D&D person who's really interested in learning to be, to improve their GM skills, or to, you know, how to get more people into the game, or if you're just interested in trying other games and want to get your friends into it and want to reach out to us, you can send us an email to bonusexpcast at gmail.com. Uh, I do remember to check it every so often, and we do try to answer people who have questions. You can also fire a question off to us at, on Twitter. You can either DM it to us or just add us directly, and that is at bonusexpcast. Or you can pop into our Discord and ask us questions there. You can go to tinyurl.com slash bxpdiscord, and that will send you the invite link, and you can pop in there directly. We love having guests. We love having people over. We love people hanging out with us. Uh, and, you know, like we said above, if you are a patron, you get a whole bunch of special stuff for joining us there. The BXP Discord also includes special channels for the systematic understanding of everything, if you are a fan of that as well. David, where can they find you and your work on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at the Ink Tonight. I have instantly forgotten my Twitter at. <laughs> um, I am on Patreon at patreon.com slash Studios. All one word. I haven't done much recently, but there's a lot of uh, pop culture stuff for 5e there that you can look through. And you can find the things I've worked on on drive through rpg by searching my name david castro all right oh and go to davidcastro.net i keep forgetting that i have a website oh you have a website fancy <laughs> <I have> a <laughs> website. <laughs> if you want to follow me i am at zenith sun on twitter you can check out my occasional thoughts on game design sometimes retweeting things that david has tweeted and you know news that sort of thing you'll learn where my political alignments lie very quickly if you follow me just forewarned is forearmed yeah so that's it uh, all right, everybody, get out. We gotta go. I got. I have errands to run. We gotta. We gotta wrap this up. Change it if you want to. Change it if you want to. Perfect. Do I have to do this? Oh, fine. Bonus Experience is written and produced by Monica and Ray, uh, and edited by Margaret. This episode features special guest David Castro. 
Our logo and art is by Nino Studios. You can find her on Facebook and Instagram. Our theme song is Reuse Noise with the Light by CDK and is used under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. BXP is part of the Misdirected Mark Network. What? What is all this? I'm not reading this. Fuck it. Bye.